Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I'm your host, Brad Redding, and our co-host, John, is here today, and we have a new guest, someone you may not have heard of before. Uh, his name is Simo. For those that don't know who you are, uh, do you want to give a quick intro to you know 99% of people out there listening to this that don't know uh, who you are? Tongue-in-cheek, just kidding, but <laughs> thanks for joining. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a bold guy from Finland, and <laughs> I dabble in, dabble in analytics and analytics development work. I think that's yeah. the best way to sum me up these days. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, I pivoted full-time to education so which we'll hopefully talk more about today yeah i know we're enrolled in a bunch of your courses i know our team oh yeah i know john you've probably taken a couple or, or seen some of the analysts we are a customer happy customer as well of uh of team <laughs> simmer so we're going to jump into today education and skills so this is something that's really hot in our own support inbox at elevar is everyone is transitioning not even the you know the three-letter word but everything else is happening in the world of tracking so all the headwinds complexities that we're facing so just wanted to do a, a deep dive in education skills simo obviously hear what your perspective and what you're seeing and then share some of what john and i are seeing on the elevar side and then we'll get into everyone's favorite topic for those that listen to this podcast everyone loves the deep dives and nuances of tracking that we get into very, very niche pod and audience that we have. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about the future of tracking with CMO. We'll get into some listener reader questions and that might be it time-wise, but I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's let's get into education. John, do you want to tee things up on the education side and skill skill set side? I know we've, we've got a lot, of, a lot of topics and notes to go through. So what we notice, we work with a ton of clients and what we notice is the top performing clients always have the most sophisticated e-com people. Maybe not surprising, right? But a lot of our clients don't have the skills they need to kind of take their companies to the next level. And we work to help them on the technology side. But I think that there's sometimes there's like a glass ceiling or something in terms of education where people, if you can't pass that certain level of knowledge, you don't really understand the mechanics of what's going on in the browser and what's going on with tracking. And it makes it difficult to make decisions about maybe making better decisions. So I just I kind of wanted to start by asking you where people should start if you had to hire somebody today that had no experience and they were going to run your site ecom wise <laughs> what would you do uh well i'd, I'd have to start kind of <laughs> walking back in time what brought me to this such a horrible catastrophic circumstances <laughs> in the first place i think that as a hypothetical not having someone in the organization who knows about anything of any of this and then hiring someone who mm -hmm. doesn't know anything about this either i think that's such a calamity at that point that it's it's beyond redemption i think that like hi hiring new skills hiring people without an established skill set is is fine it's it's a it's actually a very nice way to actually spread the good as well hire people so that they become better practitioners but it does require there to be a momentum in the organization to actually imp imprint that skill set onto this person so if, if we really were in a situation uh, where I think that there are certain external circumstances that can lead to this, such as a huge change in the regulatory climate, for example, like when GDPR was introduced, there was a, a pressing need to start hiring DPOs in all the larger organizations, so data protection officers. 
And of course, at that point, there were many organizations who had never done this type of work before, and they had to hire someone, and it was still a kind of a fairly new role. So they might have had to hire from other places. And in that case, it's just a question of kind of learning together and figuring out what the main pressure points are and tackling them atomically. Personally adapted this approach to education is that it's very difficult and awkward to hire someone who's a completely ready package and kind of tackles every single problem you have in your digital org and instead start chopping your problems into atomic parts and then start educating each one of those one at a time. And and typically there's some leakage. So when you get really good at, let's say, tag management, you're almost by necessarily are leaking with expertise into advertising and analytics because you have to implement those tags and you have to figure out what the requirements are. So I think that if you're if you are really in a situation where your organization doesn't necessarily have a capability, you have to hire someone who has the capability and they can then become the education people in your organization and spread the but as a blank slate hiring a blank slate, I think that's just uh that's an instrument of chaos at that point. It would actually be a really interesting thought experiment and in a way if you're building an education business. I think that's a really interesting thought experiment. Like, how do you build something out of nothing? But considering what the requirements are, especially in terms of regulation, and now with things like the GA4 deprecation and requirements to start building data warehouses and moving to server-side, I don't think we have the luxury of doing that anymore. We can't just hire someone as a blank slate and say, okay, let's figure out how this whole thing works together. You really need momentum. Either it has to come from within your organization or then you hire someone to bring that into your organization. I'd love the world to be in a place where we can just kind of learn together and enjoy the actual experience of education. But I think it's becoming kind of a sausage factory at this point. <laughs> we just need to turn out some meat and we can't just stop and admire the produce anymore in a way. <laughs> Got it. So what do you think, maybe higher level, just everybody in New York who's doing anything e-com related. So we, we get it we, just like you. We're in meetings all the time with people. They obviously don't have to write their own server-side tracking. They're, they're just involved in the process. The guy who is involved in these conversations but isn't writing the code should have. Should they be familiar with how cookies work? Should they understand how expiry works in the browser? Should they understand server-side tracking? Or is that too much? I think that's really the heart of maybe the question is like, what level of knowledge should everyone have? Because I feel like when I'm talking to clients, a lot of times mm. I have to explain things and then I have to give a lot of background to help them understand the mechanisms of the browser and tracking in general. And, and I guess that's like a big question for me is what level of understanding should there be just for the gen, like the average guy at a relatively sophisticated e-com company? Somewhat boils down to what the organization is like. If the organization is kind of let's let's call it a modern organization where communication flows nicely and they have established processes for knowledge sharing then it's perfectly fine that not everyone has a grasp of everything knowledge is distributed across teams and then we have we can have instead of you going to them and explaining how things work maybe they get someone from devops to talk about how server side works maybe they get someone from the privacy team to talk about browsers So they have this internal communication thing going on and people can kind of focus on their own stuff, knowing that there's someone else in the org who is really good at this and will will let me know on a need-to-know basis. And if you ask me personally, I think that everybody should know everything about everything. That's that's my ideal human being. That's what I strive towards myself. But I also understand that again, it's a luxury and it's it's also a, a ripe recipe for for burnout trying to understand everything. I think there are certain things that almost everyone needs to understand the basics of. And we're talking about things like how analytics is only ever an abstraction. You know, why when we look at our analytics data is that not a perfect representation of reality? I think that's an understanding that many people refuse to take. So they they spend a huge amount of time trying to get two completely different 
analytics data sets to match because they assume that they are both kind of you know law of therm- thermodynamics in a way that they're they're both attuned to the same meters and the same reality when in fact they're both just abstractions thereof. So I think that the sooner people understand that you don't have to get everything to match across the board, you don't have to have the same bits and pieces in every single platform. It releases a lot of stress because now we can just focus on the stuff that we know very well. And then we can start looking at things like anomalies emerge. Then we can start looking at things. Are they because of cookies? Are they because of service? Are they because of ad blockers? Are they because of regulation? Are they because of consent? It's it's always good to have someone in the organization who's kind of a generalist in these things. In a, in a product development organization, this would typically consider this to be something like the product owner who has a grasp of the context and the, and the market where the product is being situated. And in an analytics organization, I guess it would these days, it would fall more and more on the analytics engineer, like the person who's doing the deployments to be aware of all these technical changes in our environment. But when it comes to decision makers, if we're talking about a couple of levels above the operational skill set, I don't know, I've never had any empathy or sympathy towards this group of people. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm so far removed from them personally, um, and I've never really understood what makes them tick. Because I've seen so many cases of, uh, of organizations kind of manipulating the message so that the decision makers can receive incomplete information and then make decisions that are good for the people who are manipulating them and bad for the people who are not manipulating them. So, And we see this in global politics as well, but we don't want to go there right now. But... <laughs> no, 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 no. We'll, lose it. we'll lose our entire audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But kind of just summing things up, there are certain things that just people have to be aware of. The abstraction is one thing. Regulation is another thing. We have to know that in the European Union, there are certain laws and regulations that have been encoded to protect the basic privacy rights of our citizens and data subjects. Um, And the same thing is going on in the US. So there are these things emerging that have become kind of, you need to know, know them conceptually. And if you don't, the problem is that you might be leading your company down a very kind of detrimental yeah. path. But I don't think that there are, other than those, I don't think that there are certain things that everybody should know about that couldn't be somehow distributed within the organization so that we have certain key players in the organization who can who can kind of own that information. Just to package that up for the listeners. So this is, let's use the Google, the UA versus GA4 versus Google Ads versus Facebook purchase conversions. Why don't they all match? Why isn't the attribution match? Why don't the counts match? Yep. What you're saying, this is this is a daily occurrence, not not because it's, it's an issue or a fault of anyone that's asking these questions, I think it goes to the breadth and the depth of how really how wide our landscape is. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. Those are the those will, will never match. So don't don't essentially uh, waste your your time or brain power trying to understand why they don't match. Yeah. But that's where I think getting into that verticalized expertise. Where John, if we think about our customers, so if it's a fifty million dollar DTC brand, they'll have potentially a VP, maybe a director of ecom. But that person or those folks, those two or three people. I think what Simo you're saying it's it's in a perfect world they know everything about consent privacy cookies server side tracking session versus hit based and all the nuances that go into different trackers but the reality is they have a, a job to do of grow the business so they can't they can't spend 40 hours a week just evolving and and mm. really adapting their skill set to handle all of the changes that are happening so I think John, is that your your takeaway on this as well? Start maybe start at the end. So the marketing analytics of what what do they need to understand to make decisions and maybe, you know, not pull the wool over certain eyes and when they're passing on the data to their seniors. Yeah, I like that idea of abstraction. So I've never heard it put quite that way, but it's a psychological thing for people. They want for some reason, and I I do understand it. 
I think there's places to spend your energy yeah. that are more productive than trying to get everything to match and everything to line up because it is a bit of a mugs game for sure. And it's it's a noble cause. So if you are wondering why do not th- why don't these platforms match, it, it, it's a perfectly valid cost trick to investigate it. And, and that's what you should do, because then you learn more about these platforms while doing so. So trying to figure out why, you know, GA and Facebook are reporting a thousand transactions for last month, but by backend is saying 1,200. It's a thing to measure, of course, and it's a thing to keep tabs on. And then you measure it month, month in, month out, and you notice that it's always the same percentage. It's always the same ratio. And at that point, I think you can kind of safely say that, OK, this is probably just how it is. This is a quirk of the platform. This is a quirk of the context. But if you see like your backend gives you a thousand, GA gives you 500 and Facebook gives you 200. And then the next month, they're all different again. Then you know that there might actually be something wrong with implementation. So it's, it's, of course, you need to look into these things. This is a really great way of accumulating knowledge because when you dig into those things, you learn how these platforms work and how they differ from each other. So many things, like almost everything we've talked about in this short time now in this podcast, are solved by fluent communication practices in organizations. Like no no one person needs to be the jack of all trades, even though if you have that person and they're motivated to continue doing so, then you've, yeah. you've of course, struck gold. But it's perfectly fine to have an organization where knowledge is shared. At that point, it's just really important to have those transparent sharing processes in place that you you have a way to distribute information when it's when it's most sorely needed. It's a really good point. I think for the listeners that will resonate, if we look at the iOS changes, so after Facebook had to roll out all the reporting changes, before the reporting changes, a conversion. So if someone clicked on an ad and then converted three or four days later, that conversion would go back and be counted on the day of the click or the view happened, and then post iOS, the conversion was reported. So even if they clicked on an ad three days ago, but they purchased today, the conversion was reported today. So if they'd shut off their spend between three days ago to today, you would wonder, why do I have a conversion attributed to today when I turned my ads off yesterday or two days ago? I think that is a great example of, you wouldn't know that answer unless you spent the time to just dig that ditch deeper and deeper to really unpack, okay, what is going on in Facebook and why are those differences? And I think that brings me to a follow-up question because there are so many changes that are happening really on a weekly basis, especially in our world, we're very heavy in, in the world of Shopify and there's a lot of platform changes happening in Shopify and e-commerce in general, let alone the, the industry at large worldwide. Is what's What would be a good cadence or a process for knowledge share internally? Is it taking courses? Is it having an all-hands meeting where people just ask questions and there's no guarantee that everyone will have the answers? But for those questions that don't have answers and they'll team up and go try to find an expert to get those answered, what would be a good strategy or process for, for brands to take? Uh, I've always really enjoyed taking a leaf out of the Agile playbook. So having constant communication peppered in the calendar without it becoming too obstructed, of course. So the idea of a daily stand-up, for example, where people can raise blockers that need to be investigated. And of course, as in good stand-up practices, you don't try to solve it there and then, but you find the person who knows more and then you can organize a smaller meetup. And, And having like retrospectives, so looking at what worked, who gave me the best help this time, what worked in that practice, having those in place are just absolutely wonderful venues for knowledge sharing and and then of course on top of that doing like demos if you if you figured out why facebook and google analytics are so far off then maybe you can reserve like a 15 minute demo on a friday a pizza friday or whatever and kind of show what you found so just but it has to come naturally and i think that one of the problems is that we have these organizations that just aren't built 
for that kind of agency. So they they don't, I don't know what it is, but I think that some organizations actually enjoy not giving their employees that kind of freedom to distribute information. Maybe it's easier to kind of build <laughs> silos and, and manage budgets that way or something. But yeah. you can do that organically with just a smaller team. It doesn't have to be something that the entire organization does. It's something for smaller teams, even with just a peer, like one single person build a kind of knowledge sharing pair programming experience. I think that those are those are the vital things. Maybe chat GPT is going to be the answer in the future where you, d- you can always ask a large language model what the answer is or what their what their approach would be rather than find find peers in your organization. We'll get into the future in a, in a couple of minutes before we move on from the education side. You, you have courses, Elevar, we do live trainings. We are starting to do more one-on-one trainings on, in the world of GA4 for larger organizations. But Simo, tee it up for you, do online only or self-paced courses, what's the difference between someone going through, whether it's an hour course or 10, 15, 20 hour courses versus in-person training? What What's the approach that you recommend organizations or individuals take? I think that, again, in a perfect world, we would only have in-person trainings that are perfectly tailored for each organization's needs. That would be the perfect. And we have a, <laughs> a, a, a wonderful, inspirational trainer who can tell us, first, they'll they'll use six months to learn about all the nuances of my organization and then give me a, a curriculum that is perfectly uh, tuned into my business schedule. <laughs> that would be, again, a, a kind of perfect. So I, I do value in-person trainings. I really do. I think that they are. If they have the potential of really enacting change, yeah. especially if they have follow-ups. If it's just, and, and now I'm identifying with this example, if it's just a person standing in front of a classroom talking for three hours and then no follow-up, then I think it's time not very well spent. And I used to do this and I feel kind of I feel a bit bad about that part of my my history and training, but contra to that, what we're doing at Simmer is we're doing online only and we're doing self-paced, so we don't have a life component. Like we do have a life component in the sense of office hours and and we have a community where we're of course interacting live, but the actual education part is kind of pre-canned content. And I think that my approach, the reason I became frustrated with in-person is that it just didn't scale. Mm -hmm. I've been in the communities for a very long time, and I've always been somewhat frustrated about if you type or say something, then there's only a handful of people who will be able to benefit from that at that time and place, and right there and right then when you type or say it. And I've always thought about this scaling problem that there are individuals like myself and many others who spend a lot of time in communities, and I think that we would all love it that if we say or write something, it would spread to the masses and people would find it easily and they can make use of it. So I think that what online only and what self-paid courses actually solve that in-person training never did is the scaling problem. So we can create content that is easily digestible and can be consumed by millions of people without us having to figure out how do we answer that demand. Like that's a hosting problem at that point. The downside of that is that it does create a lack of personalized content. We don't know what our students are like. I don't know what the skill level of the people who buy those courses are. And of course, I try to compensate for that with the in-person stuff, like the live office hours and everything like that. But it's, it is still very difficult to tackle idiosyncratic problems that people might be having. So it's almost necessary that online only and self-paid courses become more generic maybe in their approach. It would be too bold to take a very specific approach because then you'll be excluding. And again, the scaling problem emerges again. And and in terms of like from a, from a business point of view, I, I guess that there are certain people who are doing in-person training who are so much in demand that they could probably become far wealthier doing just that. 
than spending the time building courses and updating them and, and you having the overhead from that. Because of course, yeah. there's a lot of competition in the online course space. But I, I, I personally really enjoy doing the online courses because it's kind of fun to also imagine what the perfect student would be like who is the person I'm, I'm building this content for and it kind of changes all the time and it's also fun to read the feedback and see that how the target audience was actually completely different from what i originally had in mind <laughs> it is it is a very different approach building an online course curriculum is a completely different approach than what i would do with an in-person training i just want to say you are like a master educator you really are whenever the whenever there's a issue that you know some GTM issue or just something so the it, a browser thing or how does a cookie work? If there's an article by you, it's a it's kind of a thank God moment because wow, you, you explain mechanistically why things are the way they are, and you give people the ability to actually reason about those things after they learned. It's not just this is how something works. And end a story. It's exploring what the mechanism is and how it works and giving people the ability to reason. So I guess what I'm trying to say is when you approach education in that way, I don't know. It's less important that you meet people where they are, I think. Like to a certain extent, yeah, mm. you have to speak to them at their level. But if you're giving people mechanisms and giving them abstractions, I think you can you can you can kind of get past some of the lack of education that somebody has or lack of context they have. So I just want to give you props for that because I know and I know many 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 <laughs> basically everyone feels this way. If you've presented a subject, it's a thank God moment. That's very kind. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. There there is a a conscious approach though that. I have been fortunate enough to start early, early enough that I was able to carve a niche in the very weird interface between development work and marketing work. Like those two worlds didn't really converge back in 2013 when I started the blog. There, there was such a huge gulf in the terminology um, and it was fun to bridge that gap. But what, what's been successful for me is that I am working with very technical concepts and taking technical concept and, you know, cutting it apart and teaching each atomic life. That comes very naturally for me. And that's why I think that it's been kind of easy and fun for me, but I have the hugest amount of respect for people who have the patience and the know-how and the experience of taking a really complex subject, like how does an organization work? How do, how does, how do regulations interplay? How do we build an AI investment strategy that take those and teach those in a relatable way? You can't hide behind JavaScript in that point. You can't just type, this is how a variable works. You actually have to start looking into some really, really complicated things. I'm in awe of people who can take a, a complicated data infrastructure and tailor it perfectly for every single organization in the world. For me, I, I still consider the things that I work with, and this is not self-deprecation comes really naturally for a Finnish person, but the things that I work with, I, I think they are actually quite easy things when you look at the larger world that we live in. But of, obviously, for somebody who doesn't know about those things, they might seem very complicated. Let's move into the world of ab abstraction. We'll get to you in maybe an uncomfortable place here, Simo, <laughs> with everyone's favorite topic, the future of tracking. <laughs> we can take this in obviously a variety of different uh, angles, but I thought just yeah. to tee this up, I think just asking the question, what is the point of quote unquote conversion tracking or tracking in the first place? Is it a business outcome, a financial outcome, et cetera, et cetera? And if we take a step back and look, think about 
the pre-World Wide Web days, people were still tracking advertising, whether it's billboards or direct mail, whatever it might be. And those had its downsides. And even here in the US, we still, if you look at the consumer price index, which is largely a measurement around that we use around inflation and it drives the markets and that is manual. Like if you go to if you go to the, the bureau site and ask how is CPI measured, somebody walks into a store and looks at prices of goods and does and <laughs> that's that comparison process over a month, quarter, annual basis. So with that, maybe just the point of tracking in the first place. I mean, obviously we're not going back to well, maybe we are where you can't track anything, but just to tee that up in the, the future of tracking, what is your perspective? Why do you feel like tracking is it's such a, I mean, big industry in our world, but maybe not, maybe not big in the grand scheme of things, but why do you think it's so big and critical to really any organization that's running digitally, whether it's an e-commerce site or education-based site? <laughs> this is such a, such a complicated question. You know, I actually did my, uh, so I, I have a master's degree in English language and linguistics, and I did my master's degree partly on the philosophy of language and there's always been this huge battle between two parties which is one is like the generativists or these kind of so-called armchair linguists so they just Mm -hmm. sit and theorize and posit that the world works in a certain way and then there are the empiricists who look at evidence and try to figure out if language emerges from a descriptive approach so that's why we have dialects that's why different ways of talking that's why different ways of expressing things and i was always a huge supporter and understand and i understand the empiricist approach perfectly because we can look at the world and we can look at our businesses and we can look at our marketing processes and we can draw conclusions just based on our own experience. And we can say that, you know, I I have a gut feeling that this works. Based on my experience, I know this works. Based on the legacy of this company, I know that this works. But if we only derive that out of intuition and if we only derive that out of like a qualitative sample of of our own experiences, we're lacking a, a necessary neutral third party component to that analysis, which might kind of shake the very foundations of what we believe in. So having analytics, having tracking in play, Mm-hmm. lets you question your own approaches, which is always important so that you don't become complacent. It lets you find emergent trends in your work that you might not have figured out if you're just looking at your own experience. It lets you improve your skills because you are working with certain kinds of chaotic structures that you can't just build a backup plan for. You have to take them when they come and then you have to learn like seat of your pants uh, and really quickly to, mm-hmm. to tackle those, such as changing the regulatory space. So the point of tracking in the first place, it, like on a very broad and general level, is to get evidence about how the world works. And in, in the context of marketing, get evidence about how users are using your tools, your products, your services, how you should be building them, how you should be catering to different target audiences that you can't account for yet. And now that we're moving into a more like machine learning, AI, data science, data engineering, how to build those humongous data sets so that you can actually have something that's more than just the sum of its parts. Having said that, you know, there are scenarios where tracking isn't necessary at all for to grow a business. Like I can I can, I can say that for Simmer, for example, it's a cobbler's shoes uh, dilemma that we don't have almost any analytics in place and we don't look at almost <laughs> any analytics when we build up when over the last three years we'll cut it out so, so nobody can hear this yeah, yeah no, no that's okay <laughs> that's okay i'm not ashamed of it i'm actually it's actually at one day i will do a case study when we've grown enough i'll do a case study of how we built simmer without buying a single ad without hiring an seo consultant without doing a single thing that a regular growth company would do we're just basically winging it and and enjoying that 
we're reading a lot of qualitative feedback, of course, but but you have ten years. You have ten years of foundation of brick by brick. In 2013, you started. Yeah, that's that's the foot. That's the foot. Yeah, that's yeah. the footnote. Like you know, yeah, you know, we 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 didn't do anything except you know spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours over the last ten years in communities and support forums. Yeah. So of course there's there's that, but tracking itself. I, th- I think we we have an understanding, and I think everybody agrees at some level that understanding our customers better, understanding how our product works is crucial. Mm-hmm. Where it gets complicated is just how much you can track, what can you track, um, should you even call it tracking? Is tracking a, a kind of a forbidden word these days? That's where it gets murky. Yeah. Other than the most rigid, set in their way CEOs of legacy companies, I don't think that anybody kind of disputes the importance of, of empiricism, at, at least in digital marketing, where everything is so measurable mm-hmm. that it doesn't make any sense not to measure it. Yeah, in, in our world, it and John, feel free to elaborate on this, but the word tracking for us, it's really, it's a fork in the road because you have the Google ads, the Facebooks, or really any digital channel where their quote unquote machines, they they need more event data. Their bid, their algorithms rely on this to predict and go try to find more customers. So tracking in that sense is very, it's black magic. We just need to feed the machines to help a small business, medium-sized business, large business, whoever it may be, go find and put their ads in front of other potential prospects or customers. So it's very much a, it's tracking, but it's it's for it's for acquiring new customers. And then we have the aspect which you, which you just outlined, which is it's the removal of bias. So we need, don't take just your gut, we need tracking in place so we can get a third-party or another perspective or point of view on what's working in our business, what's working in our our marketing mix, and those are two very different jobs to do, mm. and but they converge on a daily basis in in the world of Alibar and e-commerce. John, I know we have some topics here that when we get into cookie rules and local storage expiry, where do you want to take this? Do you find this more on the what's working in the business or more on the how how can we ensure that these companies that we are paying money to, the Google Ads, Facebook, are actually doing their job in helping us see a return on that investment? Where do you want to take that with uh, these next few topics? Well, it, we have to dive pretty deep into technicalities to, to, to kind of answer that question, I think. Yeah. My my biggest question right now, and I think if you're if you do the technical work, I think a lot of people's big question is: Are we going to lose in WebKit browsers? Are we going to lose that server set cookie in the coming months or years? And if that does happen, because a lot of and maybe we won't get into all the details here about why that's important. We've talked about that many times, but if we lose that. I guess my question is, where do we go next? And I'm wondering where you think we go next. Is it going to be using fingerprinting techniques? Are we going to lose user IDs, like like consistent user IDs completely? Are we going to lose visibility after a day or two into con- the consumer behavior on the site? Like, where do you think we're going? Yeah, so regarding WebKit, I think the safest assumption is that they eventually want everything to be behind opt-in. I would assume that at some point they're just going to expire all persistent storage unless the user kind of opts in to to allowing sites to access that. And I think that browsers are kind of sensitive to that as well. Much of Privacy Sandbox, for example, is looking into similar technologies, of course, with a certain emphasis on, on making Google work better as, a, as the ad tech network in question, but trying to use first-party identifiers, especially pseudonymous identifiers, to pinpoint accurately users. I think we've 
we've seen the degradation of that approach for the last 15 years already. Like it's 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 not a new thing for people to use different browsers, for people to use different profi- browsing profiles, for people to use incognito modes, private windows, apps, and all these interchangeably. So I, I, I might visit websites with different Chrome profiles uh, or Safari profiles now that WebKit is introducing those. And I might visit the same website with these different profiles. There are there are many, many websites that overlap between what I've created those profiles for. And they would all see me as different people or different users. And I think that that approach has been in the, in the you know, it's been, the writing's been on the wall for, for a long time now. And if, if what ITP did back in 2017, 2018, when they started talking about reducing the efficacy of first-party storage, I think what they did is they just shine a spotlight on the fact that this technology is inherently fragile. But what the replacement is, I don't think that we're not not necessarily looking for something to replace that technology with. Instead, I think we just need to zoom out and understand that identifying individuals in these pseudonymous data sets is going to be just more and more difficult in the future. And instead, like cohort-based approaches, I, I, I don't necessarily like Google's consent mode as uh, a vehicle for collecting data from people who don't consent. For that, it's it's a poorly named name solution. But what they're doing with modeling is very interesting. So they are they're taking the more reliable data sets from consented Chrome users, for example, and they're using that to model the the less reliant or the less reliable data sets. I think that's a very interesting approach and, and something I'm sure will, will become more prolific in the future and, and what other vendors will be doing as well. And I think that's also a good approach in analytics where, we're not, where we don't necessarily care about ads, but we shouldn't care about what the individual does other than for debugging purposes. That's the only place where I can think of where the individual is important. Instead, we should be kind of zooming out and allowing that the amount of noise that comes into building these cohorts, it's only going to get worse in the future, but that's why we just have to figure out better rules for building those cohorts in the first place. From an engineering point of view, I'm really fascinated by what WebKit is doing. I think it's it's interesting on many levels. It gives me a lot of fuel for, for thought and a lot of cool pub discussions with poor people who, or poor souls who are, who want to actually talk about cookies while in a pub. But, but I don't think that it, it actually kind of swings the, the pendulum of tracking accuracy as much as people are afraid it will. I, I think that there were a lot of apocalyptic notions when WebKit started erasing first-party storage or, or reducing it. And I don't think that it ever actually did as much damage for some like business processes, certainly it did, like expiring cards prematurely, expiring loggings prematurely, expiring constant prematurely. But for analytics, I think that the systems that we use are, again, back to the abstraction question, where they're already so abstracted that having one more lopsided signal-to-noise ratio in one of the certain aspects of our analytics tools, I don't think that's such a big deal. But I, I might be wrong in this in the coming years. But right now, it feels like there's so many other things to focus on than these this certain small technical aspect, even though it might feel like a big deal. A lot to unpack on, on that one. John, can I uh, can I jump in? Yeah, and then we'll jump into some simmer stuff. Okay. L- let's go back to your initial comment, Simo, around WebKit potentially going opt-in only. Just want to make sure listeners understand what that could mean and, and myself. So is that where the opt-in, similar to iOS, but you fire up Safari or any browser running WebKit and the opt-in is there like, hey, do you consent to tracking yes or no? And that applies to anywhere the user's browsing within that particular browser. Is that is that what you mean by opt-in only? Well, I think that what Safari is, I mean, they have this uh, proposition called is logged in, which basically um, is an API proposal. I don't think it's really moved that much over the last years, but the idea is that 
persistent storage on any given website is related to whether you are logged into that website or not. Yeah. And now by default, WebKit claims browsers assume the user is always logged in. So they can always persist cookies. They can always persist local storage. And so what WebKit wants to do is flip that around and say that if the user logs into the website, uh, whether it's using the site's own login system or a third-party identity provider, then they implicitly give acceptance that, okay, you can persist my information because I've logged in. I've given you I've given you a primary key to store, persist my information with. But as soon as I log in, log out, I want you to delete my data. As soon as my browsing session ends, I want you to delete my data. Mm-hmm. So I think that's more the so it would be site specific. I don't think they will ever want to deploy global controls because those can be manipulated. So you can have a scrupulous vendor say that just tick this box in your settings, um, and then the then nothing will have changed. So I think that I I think WebKit would be would like to move towards that direction because they don't have a stake in the identifier game at least for now. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, Obviously, that approach is very problematic because login is is a luxury that many sites can't afford or can't do or have no need to complicate the user flow any further with a login system. So in those cases, and does it also mean that now sites will have these fake logins just to get cookies back? Yeah. So it's 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 a difficult uh, thing to solve. But I think that that's what WebKit wants to do. They want to make it opt-in. They want something to prompt, maybe prompt up even, like Storage Access API works right now for third-party cookies in WebKit. And then the user has two. And, and we all know what prompting, what opt-in means for actual acceptance rates. So it's, yeah. it's interesting to see what they'll do. Yeah, yeah. I'll leave that tangent alone because I, I don't understand how that's turned into its own like CX uh, commercial optimization experimentation. <laughs> so we'll leave that to the side. Yeah. Just in our very... Like our very niche world, just to go to your point of or your your opinion on the some of Safari WebKit changes not having as big an, of an impact. So here here's a very common use case that we see with with ecom. We know CPAs cost of CPAs have gone up. You look at it over time, it just keeps going up. Costs are go- are going to continue to go up if you're just spending on Facebook or Google, really any platform. So the the cost just to get a user. So I show my ad, I show my Simmer ad or Elevar ad in front of a customer. The cost to get somebody to come to my site just to try to educate them on the product. That cost to get an eyeball is going up. Where we see, so we we have Clavio as a very popular e, uh, email platform and SMS platform on Shopify. So where the WebKit and Safari changes have, have made a dramatic impact, at least based on the results we're seeing on our Clavio integration is everyone that comes to the site from a Facebook or Google ad, we know that their, their cookies are going to expire in 24 hours. So if they come back 25 hours later and they add to cart, they're gone. So the, our Clavio integration, where we've seen a pretty substantial impact is users that come back 25 hours later without doing anything different. So they'd click a Facebook ad, they opt into an email, you know, save 10% off, whatever it might be. So they've opted into the, their Clavio list to get emails and get their discount. When they come back to the site and add to cart 25 plus hours later is now these abandoned cart flows are able to function properly. And from a business perspective, We've had customers that have you know, made eight, 10, 15, 20 additional thousand dollars just in those flows, those abandoned flows from functioning properly. And from a user perspective, you know, it's still behind consent. So it's still users opted out from consent. Those events aren't being sent to the destination. But from a brand perspective, I think that's where if they're able to squeeze more out of their abandoned cart flows that they're not really doing anything different other than just their flows can function greater than 24 hours. It makes their unit economics 
makes sense. So they can stay in business and they can continue advertising. So that's one very, one out of 10,000 use cases potentially. But what are your, I guess, do you, is that too deep in the weeds in the marketing side for you? What are your thoughts on on that specific use case? So it's, it is a perfectly valid use case. I think the unfortunate fact is that it's one of the babies that was thrown out with the bathwater when when WebKit started. So the, the, the whole problem, like there are so many good use cases for first party storage and persistent storage. The reason we have this completely arbitrary 24 hour cut down is not because of that, it's because there are vendors trying to build workarounds for tracking preventions. So that's it becomes this weird kind of mouse game where ultimately WebKit has to preserve resources and create these huge, almost standard-like approaches to storage, which no other browser engine will accept at face value. But WebKit can do this because they, like their market share on desktop is, yeah. of course, not nothing to be very impressed about, but they have a, a huge market share in iOS even though this might actually change uh, now with the upcoming changes to legislation. But the whole point is that they can do this and they can be the pioneer. And because they are such a huge market holder, they're very different from Brave, for example, who's also doing this, but even more aggressively. But Brave is so far behind. I don't think they even need the pioneer status. They just want to be uh, the perfect browser for those tinfoil hat types. But WebKit yeah. can actually be a pioneer. They can they can proof of concept things like these, and then maybe start rolling them back eventually once interesting, once more more and more use cases approach and emerge, and once other browsers start doing it too. So many of the things that are like WebKit has been doing with isolate with third party isolation for a long time is now coming to Firefox as well. We have you know total cookie protection, I think is what they call it. So for those use cases, it's 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 really it's unfortunate. I think that's the best word to describe it, how so much collateral damage has happened to this a world of analytics and tracking and advertising that has nothing to do with building cross-site audiences. Simo, you have a course on tracking protections at Simmer, and you have, I think, four or five other courses. I, I've also heard that you're going to be releasing a free course. Yeah. I want to I want to know the details on that. I want to know the details before we wrap up on I think there's some updates coming to the server side course too. Yeah. Can you just give us a quick rundown of what's going on? Oh, let's see. Um yeah, so right now actually maybe even tomorrow or the day after we're releasing our our site redesign. So we've been going with the same site for the last 3 years that I built uh or or we built in a hurry <laughs> just to get something out. So we now finally hired hired a proper team to build it. So it's going to be really, really lovely to work with with that in the future. And so just to kind of immediately say right off the bat, we're going to have a a launch discount available for for the next couple of weeks at least to celebrate this. But we so at Simmer we have we built courses around technical marketing, which is a poorly defined term. So we've decided to own it. And we have courses for server-side tagging. We have BigQuery, uh, we have JavaScript, and then we have some kind of smaller courses on web browsers and CSS selectors. So this year we released the CSS selector course earlier this year. Now I'm working on redoing the entire server-side tagging course. So there's going to be around at least 50% will be new or or heavily edited or rebuilt. Partly because there are some features coming to server-side tagging that require attention and also because it's a three-year-old course. It's not outdated, but but there are certain things I would do differently. A lot has changed, and and, of, and especially at Simmer, like we have a completely different, you know, we have a studio now. We can actually do properly. It doesn't have to be in my bedroom as the first course was done. A lot has changed in three years. So yeah, so we're, we're doing a lot of work at Simmer this year and I think that our theme for this year is brand. So we want, we want to look different and we want to uh, invest in, in, in that stuff. So there might not be that much new, new courses or new content, but the server-side tagging update is certainly going to be. 
going to be a big thing. Nice. All right. We have a few uh, listener questions. Can we do a rapid fire in the last couple of minutes here? Awesome. We can try. All right. I'm, I'm not sure I can ever give a short answer to anything. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll hold you to uh, 60 seconds or less for each. <laughs> okay. All right. We have uh, Jenna from Dacity. She wants to know, where do you go to learn yourself? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really go anywhere. Um, I, I you don't listen to the conversion tracking playbook podcast on a weekly basis. Of course, no. That's that's <laughs> that's twenty four seven on on a loop. Um, <laughs> but as for other sources, so I'm really bad at reading what other people do. Not because I'm lazy, but because I kind of want to not be impacted. I use Twitter and LinkedIn a lot just to source information, and I look for official releases as much as possible, rather than opinionated threads yeah um so I, I i do read a lot of like i read a lot of documentation and i but so my approach to learning new stuff is to do and trying to do it myself nice that's my approach that's how i learn nice um, and that's how i figure things out all right good good answer i'm very similar in that all right next one miko from woolman uh oh this is gonna be a this is a fully loaded question <laughs> what should brands do if they aren't well prepared for the cookie-less era uh, first of all, understand that there's no such thing as a cookie-less era. If you're talking about third-party cookies going away, then I don't think the brands need to do that much. It's the vendors that need to do things about that. But in terms of what we were talking about, WebKit, for example, yeah. I think that just understanding the abstractions, that's where it all boils down to. Like understanding why are we talking about first-party cookies? What are they being used for? Why are they problematic? And also just trying not to get mired in. It's I think there's... a Especially vendors find it a good sales pitch to talk about doom and apocalypse and stuff like that. We're all going to be fine. There are bigger problems in the world than cookies, <laughs> um, and so we're we're luckily in a, in an industry that isn't as horribly shaken as some other industries were during COVID or during the war in Ukraine, for example. I I agree. And uh, plug there are two previous episodes on this podcast. There's one from a couple months ago. I think it, the literal topic was first versus third party cookies and breaking down difference. Very similar to Simo said, first party cookies, they're not all going away. And then I think last week's or a week or two ago, John, Jerrica, and I, we went through a little bit more of a, a, a 101 uh, episode on cookies and various nuances of that. So listen to that if you have not. Yeah. All right. Next one. Uh, Manny from Digital Digital Dames, she would love to know if you are exploring any AI tools and any uh, any ideas around future roles within uh, data and analytics. So this gets into maybe the little education side of where where should people be focusing? Yeah, I, I am I am using just twiddling around, of course, uh, with ChatGPT. I actually <laughs> <laughs> I built uh, a course curriculum with it or just got some ideas for it. And it was surprisingly good. I'm not going to say what course it was for, but it, I was very, very impressed. And so so I, I use uh, LLMs for ideation, especially, like trying to figure out approaches. If, I, if I'm stuck in a rut, yeah. just put a prompt in and see what happens. I don't use them for coding. I've been very disheartened by the coding capabilities of these tools. I might use them to help me figure out like a like an API infrastructure, API approach, for example, but I'll write the code myself. Yeah. And for and then I use it for design because I'm so horrible at designing stuff. I love looking at what I can do with Canvas, new AI tools, for example. But for data and analytics, like the conversational analytics engine is really cool. Like being able to feed an analytics engine yeah. with your uh, your data and then being able to ask it questions. And it can re this, this kind of eliminates self-service design because you can actually have that AI be your self-service assistant. Yeah. So asking asking the kind of questions that no an self-respecting analyst should ever waste time on, like what was the bounce rate like last month? Having an AI give you that 
um, is I think that's really cool. I think that takes away a lot of time from people who are now unnecessarily spending it with those. All right, last one. This could be a quick one. We'll wrap up. Uh, Kaylee Larkin. She had two questions. I'll pick out the second one. Uh, any quick tips? So we're less, less than 30 days away from the, the transition to GA4, but any quick tips on those that haven't done anything about historical UA data and want to, uh, whether it's blog article you have or a service or anything that someone need, might need to scramble and uh, get all their data exported? Let it all burn, my friends. Let it all burn. <laughs> Stop pining after. There's no such thing as a year-on-year report. When we're talking yeah. about universal analytics and GA4, things happen in a year that make the data completely incomparable. Having said that, there are certainly, um, you know, Supermetrics, Analytics Canvas, Analytics Edge. They all have solutions. There, there are so many solutions for exporting that information. It just won't come at the click of a button. But please, please stop tearing your hair out trying to figure out how to get that data back or or <laughs> build some sort of comprehensive it's it's such a waste of time i don't that's a that's a perfect ending with that that's a wrap simo thanks for uh thanks for joining any uh i guess where can people get in touch with you uh simmer courses etc Drop, drop it on us. Yeah, take a look at teamseamer.com. Like I said, we're, we're due for a read. I think when this episode comes out, we'll hopefully have the redesign up and running already. And we have a mailing list which or a newsletter, which you'll find on that site too. So teamseamer.com slash newsletter. It's a, we try to put it out every two weeks, but occasionally we can't reach, make that schedule. But it's, it's an informational newsletter first and foremost. So I share topics around the technical marketing world. And occasionally we do distribute discounts and offers, but it's it's certainly an in- informational newsletter. And then Twitter, Simohava, LinkedIn, Simohava. I use use those quite a, quite frequently too. All right. Share information. And, and then there's Measure Slack as well. So join.measure.chat to join one of the biggest analytics communities in the world online. All right. We'll have all those links in the show notes. Uh, I highly recommend the newsletter. I read it every two weeks or four weeks, depending <laughs> on when it comes out. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Thank, thanks for joining, Simo. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Simo. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, we release two new episodes per week. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that you subscribe and listen to your podcasts. I also have a favor to ask. I'd really appreciate if you could leave a comment or a review so I can learn exactly how to improve future episodes for you. And last but not least, if you want to connect with me, find me on LinkedIn by searching Brad Redding at Elevar. That's E-L-E-V-A-R. Or you can DM me on Twitter. My handle is I am Brad Redding. I look forward to connecting with you. Thanks again. Thanks again.